So I don't know if you knew this, but uh, I have a bit of a criminal history. Bit of a jacket, as they say in 80s uh, action movies. Bit of a bit of a thug, as some might say. Whoa. It's Too contra- far? Controversial. Controversial, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot. Uh, we'll, we'll erase thug. So when I was uh, just one of my many criminal escapades uh, came when I was uh, 15, I think. You might know. Was I 15, 16? Yeah, probably 15. I think I was. Yeah, I, okay, I was 15. I actually remember why I know that. Uh, so I was 15. I was hanging out with uh, a couple friends as most 15-year-old males. We were not hanging out with females, and we didn't know what to do with all this pent-up testosterone. So we uh, we may have partook in some illegal substances, which or we may have been sober. I think back to this story, and I think I may I have I think you might have up, been sober for I, this Yeah, I, I might make up the illegal substances thing to kind of excuse what comes next. Uh, so we ended up at, uh, I think, Walmart or some toy store. We end up with squirt guns, these real bright little squirt gun pistols. And uh, we think it's a good idea to just run around town and just start squirting people with these things. In Brunswick. In Brunswick, yeah. All around uh, Cook's Corner, if you know Brunswick. Uh, Yeah, we're just shooting people in Walmart and all these other places, and we just think we're the funniest motherfuckers in the world. Uh, At some point during the night when it was winding down, we went to McDonald's, as you do. And I know for a fact, I don't want to admit it, but it was my idea. I know it was my idea because I remember... This is a Zach idea. I remember thinking like, wow, I am so smart. This is the funniest thing that's ever been said. And I said it. I said, wow, wouldn't it be funny if we took these little pistol water guns? You know, they're green and orange, all these bright colors. I'm like, wouldn't it be funny if we pretended to like hold up this place? And then they see the water guns and they see they're bright and flashy and it'll be a joke. We'll all have a good laugh. We'll probably get like a free fucking, you know, uh, what's a Big Mac out of it, you know? And I even at one point, I uh, I took my bags. We got these big bags. We order a lot of food and uh, I cut eye holes in it and I put it on my head and I'm like, <laughs> this is what we'll wear. I remember one of one of my friends, he kind of pussied out and uh, he went outside. He actually had a camera. He said he was going to like film it, which I... Th- Derek? Yeah, which I thought was a bad idea. We won't use last names, just first names. And Tyler? No. Uh, Mike? Ryan. Oh, it was Ryan. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't, should we use the real first names? We can use the real first names. All right, names. I don't think they'd care anyway. Uh so yeah, me and uh, this other guy, Ryan, we, we proceed to put these things on our heads and we take the water guns and we, we turn the corner because we're sitting on the opposite side of the, uh, of the you know, desk where you order and stuff. And we go up and I, I point my gun and I start to go, this is a, and before I can say hold up or anything or whatever I was going to say, this guy who looked like, I mean, I don't know what he was doing at a McDonald's. He looked like John Cena. He was big. Maybe I've built him up in my head over the years, but he was definitely some kind of, like, bodybuilder. Like, he, you know what I mean? His muscles were, like, popping, and you had that little McDonald's logo. It was being stretched thin on his on his arm, you know? So he comes blasting at us, and immediately, of course, I'm 15 years old. I'm like, run. So we <laughs> run as fast as With we With the paper can. bags on your head? I think we did. Yeah. You know what? I think we did keep them on. I can't remember when we took them off, but I, I remember knowing like I need to keep this on. So like nobody knows who I am. Like nobody sees me. But you already it. had eaten there and ordered food. Already there. eaten, already ordered food. Everyone saw my face. People we went to high school with worked at fucking McDonald's, yeah. which I did not consider. One of those people knew it was me. Um, anyway, so we actually, we end up getting away that night and, uh, 
apparently because like I just wanted to get all my stupid out of me at 15. I'm like, you know what would be funny? Because I'm always, I always got the funny ideas. You know what would be funny? Let's go back to McDonald's. After you already got away. Yeah, and we'll eat breakfast there and we'll be like, you know, serial killers just like floating among the the fucking homicide tape you know we're just a bystander but we know what happened so we went back uh before we even entered mcdonald's i didn't get any fucking breakfast before we go in they had this like loading dock and i remember the door opening and there were like it it was like terminator dude there were like (laughs) 10 guys all in mcdonald's uniforms all men by the way and they're just like one of them points at us and all of a sudden they're all running at us and i'm obviously like my instinct at 15, run. So we start running. I remember we were running everywhere. We were like in and out of stores because these guys would not give up. It was like all around Cook's Corner. And at one point we were like hiding in a restaurant. I literally remember running into a restaurant. And Where'd I, you run into? It's a restaurant that's not there anymore. It was... Winners? Yes. Uh, it was by Regal, right? Yeah. Yeah, we ran in there. Because you lived right behind Regal. Yep. And I didn't want to go home because I'm like... Because you live really close. Yeah, they'll see where I fucking live. Yeah. So I went in there and I literally remember like the hostess being at her little, uh, you know, her desk. And I hid behind her her little desk, her podium. And she was like, what? she didn't even know what to say to us. We were just hiding, <laughs> like peeking out. She said nothing. Eventually, uh, we left there and then we were like walking because we thought we got away. Then all of a sudden they spot us again, pointed at us, run. I also live near this very sketchy neighborhood, uh, Perryman Village, was it called? Yeah. Not the 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 uh, top of the line clientele. Yeah. It's like a place you would see on Cops. You know what I yeah. mean? Um, some good people live there, I'm, I'm sure, but it's that kind of place. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm looking behind me, watching these McDonald's guys run at me, and like ten guys from Perryman start joining them. Like they don't give a fuck who I am. They're just like, I didn't so know this. Sweet, we're gonna kill somebody. So I'm running. I remember distinctly thinking this. I'm running straight at my house. And I was like, fuck, because I'm running out of steam. You know what I mean? 20 guys are chasing me. (laughs) Maybe less. Maybe I built it up again. And I'm like, fuck, I can either like run into my house and just be like, fuck it. Like, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Because in my head, I didn't know that I did like anything wrong. You know what I mean? And then I'm also like, I could run past my house because there was Walmart. I'm like, we could somehow maybe like get in Walmart and lose them there. But I was also like, Walmart's a wild card move. I was too young to start pulling wild card moves. You know what I mean? So I was like, fuck this. And I ran straight into my house like the biggest fucking pussy in the world. And uh, police ended up coming. Letting them know where you live. Which technically they would have known already because someone we went to high school with actually worked there. Yeah. And he knew who we were already, which we found out after the fact. And he was like Mr. Employee of the Month at McDonald's during high school. So, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even remember his first name. But, uh, so yeah, cops come. Uh, Criminal mischief is the charge. They also threw in vandalism. They say we, like, took knives out, cut a bunch of seats. But I remember seeing those seats, like, this was not an upscale McDonald's. So I think they just threw in some damages. Like, maybe we can profit (laughs) off of this? Which I can actually almost respect. Like, I almost heard that. Even at 15, I was like, wow, that's kind of a... That's a ballsy move. That's kind of cool. <laughs> like, uh, so anyway, um, I'm getting charged. I have to get a job because I think I'm gonna have to get a lawyer or something. And 
It turned out our school had some kind of program for fucking like lost youths, which apparently I was one. And uh, we had to go to this eight week uh, summer program. It was at the Freeport Police Department. And you showed up every week and it was like a, like an AA meeting. It was like you all sat in a circle Every week they would go from person to person. What was your crime? What was your crime? And ours was fucking embarrassing. Like if this had been prison to tie it into what we're going to talk about, we would have been the bitches because people, when they asked people what they did, one guy was like running a whole drug ring in his school. And then he expanded outside of his school to another school and he got busted. Another person like stabbed their mom with a butter knife or something. And then they'd get to us and we, we like didn't know what to say. I would just be like, we, held up a McDonald's but with like water guns you know like a joke like it was supposed to be funny and I mean people would just look at me like oh my god did they all laugh people laughed yeah there which uh, whatever that is what it is so anyway uh, that's the reason why you didn't get raped too that's, yeah we were funny we were the clowns <laughs> the jesters but uh, so yeah so that's what we ended up doing and uh, oh I remember another thing this was this might be when I grew my balls for the first time because the running into the house was the pussy move, but I remember the the deal was we went to this eight week program and we also had to write apology letters <laughs> to the manager of McDonald's, who was the big John Cena looking motherfucker. And I remember being in the room. It was me, my mom, and uh, was it the resource officer? Is that the guy at the yeah. school? Yeah, it was our resource officer. But we were at the police department, and uh, he was like, "And you have to write an apology letter." And I remember being like, "I'll." I'll do the eight weeks, but I'm not writing an apology letter. Like something in me said, do not do that. Do not cut your dick off and just hand it across the table. Have some redemption. And he kept saying like, you know, if you don't do that, there's no deal. You're going on trial for this. Like that's what will happen. I was like, you know what? I'm going to take my chances. I am not writing an apology letter. It's not going to happen. Turns out the apology letter was a total bluff. I never had to write it because I never did it. And I still fucking, it all got expunged. Um, the friend of mine did write an apology letter and I remember he showed it to me and I never looked at him the same again. Ryan. Yeah. Uh, did Derek get busted? No, that was the other detail I was going to say. So like the video camera, I saw that I, I, maybe I didn't see the footage, but uh, he left that morning before we went to McDonald's and I thought he had footage that would prove we didn't vandalize anything. And I remember thinking that was a big deal, but he showed it to me and it was dumb. It was all like on the ground and shit. So he never got in trouble for anything. Um, yeah, that's uh, one of my few criminal escapades I'm willing to share. the man of science man of faith podcast i'm zachary lehman my partner in crime is taylor berryman how can people find you taylor they can find me on uh instagram the underscore poptimist or on facebook as taylor berryman or snapchat i think i think it's also the underscore poptimist okay i'm on uh, twitter at writing lehman l-e-e-m-a-n and just zachary lehman on instagram and facebook z-a-c-h-a-r-y okay you have a book out? I do have a book out. Nye. Uh, find it on Amazon. Go buy it, please. And I also have a song out, Gina, Gina, Gina. Gina, Gina, Gina. By the Poptimus. You can find that um, on all the... everywhere, right? Everywhere. It's everywhere. All right. So this week, we're going to talk about the one, the only, the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. 
Because what other movie is there to talk about? It's it's a classic, dude. It's one of my all-time favorites. It's, uh, well, then let me ask you, do you remember when you first saw it? And what's like, like, have you revisited it? Was this your first time in a while? Like, what's your relationship with this movie? So, I usually watch this movie, like, once every other year or so, Okay, I would say. I watched it twice this year so far because um, I watched it. Rewatched it last night again, and then a couple of weeks when quarantine first started for we coronavirus. I remembered while I was rewatching. We I watched like, it. <laughs> um, I think the first time I saw it, I, I want to say I was probably a kid. Yeah. Probably a kid, and I imagine it was just on TNT or something like that, or yeah. that might might have been one of the first DVDs my family got. Yeah. Yeah, I remember, uh, I don't know what age I was, but I saw it on like VHS it might have even been one of those like double VHSs. I don't remember. Oh yeah, because it's long. And then I remember seeing it, and just it was like a huge deal when we were kids. Um, and I remember seeing it then. And then you're right; it was always played on TNT, and it was one of the probably one of the only movies when I would flip through channels if it was on. I'd be just like, watch "This it. is what I'm doing for the yeah. next two hours, half hour, however much was left." But I this I picked this movie because this is my go to like feel good movie. I have seen, I, I don't, this this movie I've seen so many times, I've reached a point where I'm like, it would say stupid to say how many times, because yeah. they just meld together. In the last year, like you said, I watched it with you this year, which I didn't even remember until I was rewatching it. I've probably seen it six times in the last year, and I probably have consistently done that every year, because this is like, any time I hit any sort of rut in life, if it's a real rut... This is the thing I turn to that's sort of just like life affirming. Mm -hmm. It's just an injection of hope. You feel good after watching this. It's stoic. And not in a, it's not a feel good movie in the way that like some are blatantly sentimental or or funny. It's like a genuine message of hope that I don't think any other film has replicated. No, I would agree with that. And uh, so before we get into, because we both rewatched it, so I'm curious what your reaction was. But before we get into that, I did some background research on Shawshank because I wanted some, you know, notes about the film, just as you did with uh, with Sturgill's album. And I, I didn't realize, I thought I knew a lot about this movie. I didn't. I I had never done a deep dive on this film. And I, I couldn't believe the circumstances that gave us the Shawshank Redemption. There were so many moments where it shouldn't have been made. And it was just, whether it was lightning in a bottle, it was the right timing... It, I mean, it's it's almost a miracle that this film got made. So one story I want to tell you, actually, before I tell that story, let me say Shawshank, when it first came out, was a box office bomb, which I don't think anyone who watches it now with the reputation it has would know, but it didn't do well. It was only like a $25 million film, but it just flopped. I mean, it came out the same year as a lot of huge, huge movies. At the same time, it was in theaters uh, as Pulp Fiction and mm-hmm. Forrest Gump, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe like one or two other big movies yeah, it was a big year and it was a hard film to sell because it's it's about prison but it's also kind of a hopeful story it's two and a half hours it's like a hard sell at theaters but after it got passed over in theaters it ended up becoming one of the biggest rentals of the 90s it's the top rated movie on imdb i mean it's just you there are people who don't like it but they're pretty hard to find mm-hmm. but the way this movie started was the writer-director, Frank Darabont, before he ever made Shawshank, he was kind of a genre writer. He had written uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, 
the Blob remake, the Fly 2, not the stuff you expect from the guy who would end up making Shawshank. Shawshank. But anyway, so he he was a struggling writer and he had always wanted to make Shawshank, but he was like, I have to make a name for myself before someone will let me direct this. So that was the reason for him working on these genre pictures. And eventually he wrote this movie in uh, eight weeks because after he said after 87, when they made uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street movie that he co-wrote, he thought he had enough clout for someone to actually read his script. So he went and wrote it for eight weeks um, and he sent it to a bunch of places. It went to Castle Rock which was a, I don't know if they're around anymore, but the only reason this was even read at Castle Rock was because a producer, Liz Glotzer, I believe her name was, she read it because she had a weird interest in prison stories and no one else at the company would read it. But they passed it to her because they're like, oh, you like reading prison stuff sometimes. She read it, wanted to make it. They didn't want to make it. She said, I'm going to quit if you don't make this movie. And they ended up making it. So Frank Darabont, 33 years old. This is the amazing part I wanted to tell you because I want to get your reaction. Same age as Jesus, dude. Oh, was Jesus 33? Jesus was 33, right, Millhouse? Yeah. All right, 33. Wow, that's... Maybe that's our year. (laughs) (laughs) I'm holding out hope, dude. Yeah, me too. So he was 33, but still a very young screenwriter. He was saying in interviews I read that he could not make his rent at the time. He was struggling. Like, these movies were not paying the bills. So, they end up wanting to make the movie. Rob Reiner at the time, big director. He's just off of, like... Who also worked on Stand By Me, right? Stand By Me. Another Stephen King story. Which, Castle Rock got its name, actually, from the town. Yeah. Stand By Me. So, he had a good relationship with the studio. He had made, like, When Harry Met Sally, uh, A Few Good Men. He reads the script, loves the script, loves it. He says, I have to direct this. Frank Darabont at 33, can't pay his fucking bills, meets with Rob Reiner. Rob Reiner says, I am going to pay you $3 million for the right to direct your movie. And then the studio sweetened the deal and said, if you let Rob direct it, we will finance whatever you want next. You can direct whatever movie you want. But obviously the downside is he can't direct Shawshank. Now imagine being even this age and getting an offer like that. How tortured would you be? It would be pretty fucked up, but if it's something that I'm really passionate about that I know I can do well, I couldn't pass it off. Well, this is this is definitely uh, a testament to, to sticking to your guns because he, he talks about this was a really, really hard time for him because he grew up poor. His parents were immigrants, I, I think from uh, Hungary, and being offered not only $3 million, but being offered a career was like, why would you ever walk away from that? But he ended up saying no. And for whatever reason, the studio put faith in him. And they said, all right, go make your movie. And actually, uh, this is a funny fact, too. When Rob Reiner was going to direct it, uh, Tom Cruise was going to be Andy Dufresne. I saw, yeah. (laughs) I saw, like, uh, Tom Cruise, Kevin Costner. Yeah, Kevin Costner, I guess, turned it down. So did Tom Hanks, for whatever reason. I think a lot of people were scared, from what I was reading, just because Frank Darabont was very new. He had directed, like, a television film before this. And then also... Another short film based on a Stephen King book, which I guess Stephen King really liked. And uh, Stephen King co-wrote the script too, right? No. He got writer's credit on it though. Nope. It's just based on his, his oh, novella. Oh, I, I thought, I thought um, he And actually he said when Frank Darabont said, I want to make this movie, uh, it was just a novella. It wasn't a long story. And Stephen King was like, go ahead, but I have no clue how you're going to make this into a film. Because the, the book is basically all narration from Red. That's pretty much all it is. So anyway, we both rewatched Shawshank Redemption. Yes. 
So first, let me just ask generally, do you still love it? Yeah, I still love it. And it's going to be one of my all time favorites. I think the themes that I love in the movie are, it's kind of stoic. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's like life moves like water. Yeah. Well, there's that line. He says, uh, red, what does he say? Uh, pressure and time. Pressure and time yeah, about geology. And time. And geology, yep. That's all geology is, pressure and time. And he repeats, he goes, pressure and time. And that is kind of a central theme of this film, I think, because it's so much about life yeah. in general. So we open the movie, and I love this open. What do you think about the opening song? It's uh, If I Didn't Care by the Ink Spots. I had to look it up. And it's very just old-timey, very... Kind of haunting in, in perspective bit. of the scene. Once you see the woods, it becomes a little bit like, oh, okay, this is not a feel-good a feel good movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So then we come to Andy Dufresne. You know, he's drinking. He's in his car. And uh, then we cut to his trial. It's basically inter- interspliced with his trial. He's uh-huh. on trial for murder for his wife and her lover, who she was cheating a on. A pro golfer. With. A pro golfer. And this is also, this is when we get our first chance to see Andy is a little aloof when it comes to like social interaction because he's almost annoyed he's on trial because he, in his mind, we don't know if he did it, which is one of the best parts of the movie. I was also going to say is that they keep it a mystery the whole time, whether Andy did it. We never, ever see the murder the way it happened. No. So at the end, I mean, you could literally say maybe he did kill him. There could be a theory for that. I don't think he did, but you could definitely make that argument based on what's presented. But this is where we see Andy's kind of not that great with social interactions, which is probably what led his wife to cheat on him. Cause he says, uh, like there's one line that's great where they're talking about, he threw his gun into a river. He's yeah. Like, so I couldn't have killed him cause the guns full. I, I threw it into the river. And then, uh, the lawyer says, uh, you know, we, we went through the river. We didn't find a gun. Isn't that convenient? And he goes, well, because I am innocent of this crime, I find it decidedly inconvenient. And it's very just highbrow. Yeah. It's very like, what am I doing here? So anyway, Andy uh, predictably gets uh, life in prison. I think he gets two life sentences. Two life sentences back to back. Yeah, which when you see that said and the camera stays on Tim Robbins and you see his reaction to that, I think it would be most people's reaction. Just like everything just got taken away. Like he is drained. You see everything just drained from him. I read an interesting theory on this uh, on this movie that talks about it, it ties into what we were talking about at the end of last week, the theme of Christian mysticism. Okay, it's like the hero's journey in five steps. So yeah, yeah. Um, I can already see that. I got some notes on it. It's the first step is awakening, which is Andy going to prison, right, and finding out that he has limits and coming to terms with reality. Yeah. So I thought that you're bringing was, me back to high school, dude. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he uh, he lived uh, you know as as a banker. He was married, worked all the time, was very successful. He was uh, president of a bank in Portland, Maine. Yeah, which they say is a big deal. He's like 28 in the movie. Yeah. Oh yeah, the movie takes place in Maine, by the way. Yeah. But it was shot in Ohio, which we'll talk about more. But keep going. Um. But yeah, he's very much like a uh, rigid kind of personality type you know what i mean very disciplined tall drink of water with a spoon up his ass yeah somebody says later (laughs) and it's uh it's pretty good i think red actually red says that yeah yeah, when he first sees him i thought that was a pretty accurate description of him at the beginning 
but yeah, that's the that's the first uh, the first okay. step. Okay, I like that. Keep bringing them up as we hit them. Okay. So we go straight from the trial to this was this is interesting too to go from a trial to a parole hearing. This is when we meet Red Ellis yes. Redding, and uh, he is being rejected for parole, and we can see why he's being rejected. He's in prison for murder. I think he's been there at the beginning, like 20, 25 years, something like yeah. that. And uh, he basically, it sounds like he's just reading a script. He's kind of dead inside. Yeah. Rejected. Doesn't care either way if he gets released or if he it doesn't stays. Seem, yeah, it doesn't seem like he cares very much. doesn't seem like he's trying to get out. Uh, so after that, then we go to like the gr- maybe the greatest collection of shots in like cinema history. When you pan over Shawshank Redemption and you're seeing this bus come in. The you're sh- hearing the sirens. The siren starts, which you hear later, too, for a very different reason. So the siren starts. All these guys are kind of running out to the yard or whatever because something's happening. Then you see this bus pull in and the score by Thomas Newman starts. And it's maybe the best score I've ever heard. Like that music, when it starts dropping, you just feel like you're going into a different world. So then uh, they pull in. The guys are making bets about who's going to break the first night, which we kind of don't know what that means. But uh, everyone bets. Red bets on uh, the tall drink of water with, with a spoon, spoon up his ass. ass. He says that Silver guy's going to break. Yeah, makes a rich bet. And then after They're betting cigarettes. Yep. And then uh, another shot. I l- this is maybe my favorite shot in any movie. When Andy is walking into the prison and the camera pans up, and you see, like, as he's looking up at these walls, these tall walls. That's his last walk of freedom. Yep. And the air just disappears, and suddenly everything's black because he's in this tunnel to go wherever. And the film, by the way, I should say, was shot by uh, Roger Deakins, who's gone on to be huge. He's shot giant movies like Sicario. He's a cinematographer. Cinematographer. And uh, he was only on the movie, actually, because Tim Robbins said, because Frank Darabont is new. I want someone experienced to be the DP. And this was a guy he had just worked with. And that's why Roger Deakins came on. And Roger Deakins is a big reason this movie looks so good. Cause he can just capture like a crisp realism. Everything's very, um, muted. Mm-hmm. Like the way that the movie looks, it's kind of muted and uh, and drab. And it's a very physical movie. Like I was talking about that pan earlier. At one point it pans over the prison. And if they were to do that shot today, they would just do it digitally. So it would look clean, but not in a real way. With this, you can just see how many extras are moving, and it makes this place feel real. Very it feels true. Big, and that's kept on throughout the movie. So this is when Andy's first getting introduced to. He's going through the process of getting into prison, and they get the minutia great. You know, they come in. We meet uh, Captain Hadley, played by Clancy Brown. Maybe his great best villain. performance. Yeah, he some guy. Remember that guy's like, when do we eat? He's like, what questions do you have? When do we eat? And he, he gives, gives him the fucking nightclub. Yeah, you dude. eat when we say you eat. You shit when we say <laughs> you shit. <laughs> it's great. And then we also meet the warden played by uh, Bob Gutton, I think. He's great, too. He is great. One thing I was going to say about those guys being introduced, though, and this will play into what we're obviously going to talk about later, but one of the great things about Shawshank is there's no one antagonist. The antagonist in the movie persistently changes. Well, it's almost like the uh, the prison itself is the antagonist. Exactly. Because the prison's a character in this right. movie. 
And that's what I think they're they're doing because this prison to me is a metaphor for life, and life is the antagonist. Yeah, it doesn't matter if it's Captain Hadley or it's the sisters. There's who will be always to. something. There's, There's always, always someone. Doesn't matter who it is. Someone's gonna be trying to hold you back. But we'll get more into that later. So anyway, they're 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 brought in naked. And this plays into another another theme, which is the Christian mysticism theme. Because they're they're being like reborn. They're being uh, reborn. Yes. So this is the start of a journey. Right. Okay. Th- this is sounding. I bet Frank Darabont did that intentionally. So anyway, they're they're brought in. Um, we're introduced to. I can't remember his name. I don't think he's ever given a name. Just big mushy fat ass. And uh, <laughs> we see that he's the one to break. He ends up crying because uh, another character named Haywood starts taunting him. He's like, I'll introduce you around. So who's so that bad. Who's that actor? William Sadler. He's been in a ton of stuff. Yeah, I feel like he's been in other prison stuff too, right? He might have. The main thing I know him from is he was in Die Hard 2, I think, is the villain. But that's another thing to say. Even the guys with the smallest parts in this movie are great, and you'll see them pop up everywhere. Yeah. The, every one of these actors are those guys who you're like, what's his name? Because I recognize him. Great character actors. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this big mushy fat ass, he ends up uh, breaking after Haywood says he's going to introduce him to some some big old bull queers who will just love to make his acquaintance. And uh, he starts crying for his mommy. And this is when we see the true evil of Captain Hadley. He comes in, pulls this guy out of his out of his cell and just beats him, beats him within an inch of his life. And this was actually when I was going to say something else about this movie. This movie is very, very dark. There's death, there's rape, there's... I mean, it gets into the dark... Like, shit that... The darkest parts of humanity. Almost no movie, if it's getting a big theatrical release, would would do today. But one thing I was going to say is it's never graphic. No. And it almost makes it worse because, like, when this guy's being beaten by Captain Hadley, it's all in the shadows. You don't see any blood or anything. you can hear it. They turn up the sound. You can hear just bones being hit you can it makes it so much more haunting that all you can do is hear it's it. very visceral even though you don't see much yep so we find out that your imagination uh, fills it in yeah uh so we find out the next morning this guy died uh we're in the cafeteria when they're all eating breakfast together yep and uh we're introduced to brooks who will become important later brooks and jake yes crow he has as a pet and uh yeah they all find out that this guy died and Another great part in this movie is uh, he asks, uh, oh, Andy asks, what was his name? Did anyone know his name? And Haywood is almost mad that he asked the question. He's like, the fuck do you care, new fish? He's dead. What does it matter? You know, which tells you the mindset of these guys. Going back, one of the first things that Andy or uh, Red says about Andy is he walks around like he's not affected that he's in prison. Yeah, and he asked that question, and that's not a typical question that any of those guys would have asked, or even right. And he'll have about. he'll have more conversations where he stands out. Um, this is, I think, just a moment where Darabont's trying to show how different he is to mm-hmm. this place that he's just entered. So, uh, oh, and then uh, actually, let's back up again because Red has some great narration when these newbies are first brought in and put in their cells. He's talking about uh, when those bars close, that's when you know it's for real. And then he also says, uh, whole life blown away in the blink of an eye. Nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it. And that, like those two lines really, I've never been to prison, but those sound like they sum up prison just 
to a T. I mean, those are haunting lines. Yes. Yeah. Those are haunting lines for what's going to come before. Because this is a guy who's been in prison 20 years. He's ex- describing a guy who's just getting to prison. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So we see Hadley. We see all that. We're introduced to Brooks. So then uh, Andy makes his introduction to Red eventually. Goes up to him, asks for a rock hammer. Which, of course, sets up. Oh, there's a lot of uh, breadcrumbs put for the ending. Kind of mm-hmm. put out to kind of get you ready for the ending. Ask him for a rock hammer because Red's the guy who can get everything. Um, and he thinks he's going to escape. And th- this is great because the movie is spoilers about a prison escape. And the whole, it, the the idea of a prison escape is just kind of thrown away at the beginning. You know? And uh, so he asks Red for a rock hammer. And uh, this is when some really great lines come out where... <laughs> He asks him why he uh, killed his wife and his uh, and her lover. And uh, Andy says, well, I'm innocent, just so you ask. And then Red's like, you're going to fit in right. You're going to fit right in here. Yeah. And he starts asking everybody else, what'd you do? <laughs> He's like, like Haywood goes, uh, lawyer fucked me. I'm innocent. And this line always used to make me laugh when I was in the military. Me and uh, some other guys would joke about this. We would joke about this is kind of the same conversation you have in the military. And people go, why did you join? Everyone kind of has the same answer. Instead of lawyer fucked me, you go recruiter fucked me. So I love that. And then he also asks Red at one point, he goes, why do they call you Red? And Red, by the way, is the only person with a nickname in this entire movie, which I thought was interesting. Everyone else is called by their last name. I never noticed that. Yeah. It was kind of a weird detail. I never, I don't know if it means anything. It just stood out to me. But uh, he says, why do they call you Red? He goes, maybe because I'm Irish. With, his last name's Redding, though, right? His last name is Redding. But so no one else gets a shortened version of yeah. it. Everyone else is just Haywood, Floyd, I forget the others. But he says, maybe because I'm Irish, which is funny because in the book, apparently, I haven't read the books, so this is secondhand. In the book, Red actually is an Irish guy with, like, red hair. Oh, really? And they just hired Morgan Freeman because whoever thought he was the best guy to do it. But it's funny, they kept that joke in to kind of joke about the casting. Yeah. So I like that. Uh, so yeah, so then we're we're just going with Andy. We're also introduced to the sisters at this point, led by uh, Boggs. Is Boggs. It? Boggs. Whew. And the, is is uh, when he first walks in, Boggs is looking him up and down. Oh in yeah, the, checking in, him out real in the hard. cafeteria, and then he confronts him in the shower. I could be a real good friend. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Well, he's creepy, dude. Which, I, Very unsettling. Again, I've never been to prison, but I know enough to know if I do go to prison and someone says, I could be a real good friend to you, they're you never going to be a friend to yeah, me. Yeah, you don't want to be friends. <laughs> Stay away from them. And, oh, there's another great line, speaking of the sisters, when Red is giving Andy a piece of advice. He says, the sisters have taken a liking to you. And Andy goes, well, would it help if I explained I wasn't homosexual? And Red goes, uh, neither are they. You'd have to be human first. Yeah, that's Which is great. Dark. Yeah. Because I'm sure... Today, someone somewhere has complained about the depiction of these gay characters. But these characters aren't gay. They're monsters. They're monsters. They just They're wanna, sociopaths. They want to take control. They get off on the fact when people fight back. Mm-hmm. So, and then Andy eventually gets attacked by the sisters. And this becomes, we watch him, again, a, a scene that's very dark, but not graphic, is the first time he's confronted by the sisters. And Red's narrating it, and he goes... I'd like to tell you Andy fought him off, but prison is no fairy tale. And we sort of walk out of the room. We pan out. Around the corner. So we don't know what happens, but we know over the course of these two years, because then we sort of, Red gets into talking about how you're in a routine in prison. 
and how uh, Andy's routine was working the laundry. Getting beaten and raped. Getting beaten and raped. It's never explicitly said, but that's what we guess is happening. And it's almost darker the fact that it's not said or that we don't see it. Yeah. It's very, very dark. The sisters. So anyway, uh, and you could say that's the first antagonist of the movie is Boggs. Yes. And then it'll get switched out eventually. So is this where this is where the warden takes an interest in Andy? Uh, what? No, actor? actually, uh, this is where uh, the tarring, tarring the roof. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yep. The roofing job. That's right. So he had two years. Oh, yeah. This was something I was going to ask you about. So it's two years. His routine is getting attacked by the sisters. Then all of a sudden they announce this new job. They're going to be tarring the roof of one of the buildings. And Red explains he pays for all his buddies to, you know, he pays in cigarettes or whatever yep. to get them the detail. But one thing I was going to ask you is Andy is also picked. But when they all share a look like, oh, yeah, we're going to get picked. Andy doesn't know what's going on. Do you think Red paid for Andy to be on the job? Because I think he felt so. Bad for him. I think so. I yeah. think so, too. But that's something I never even thought about when I first watched this. Yeah, because it's Red and all of his buddies, their, their little gang. And then Andy. And then Andy. Mm hmm. So they're tarring the roof and a little behind the scenes detail, I guess. The tar, the only way to make it look right is they actually tarred this roof. Really? And the problem was they were working pretty hard because in order for the tar to look uh, new, they had to put on like a fresh coat. Otherwise, it would harden and shit. So they had to keep doing it over and over because Frank Darabont at the time wanted a lot of takes. So we'll talk about it. But eventually, when they each have their beers at the end of the day, that was literally the last shot of the day. And That's they, great. And they're all really just sitting there enjoying beers after a hard day's work. So we're on the roof. Again, we see what a piece of shit Hadley is because he's just inherited, I think, like 30 grand. Because his brother died. His brother died. He inherited 30 He was grand. talking shit about him. And any any positive thing anyone can say about this money, he just says something negative back. They're like, oh, wow, that's great. That's like hitting the lotto. And he's you're like, gonna... dumb shit. <laughs> Think about what I got to pay in taxes. And then you're going like, to get a new car. Yeah, and then they're like, oh, but you still got enough left over. He's like, for what? For a new car? And then I got to pay for repairs. I got to pay taxes on the car. I got to take my fucking kids for He's a, a miserable cunt, <laughs> he's basically. A, he's a miserable cunt. This is when Andy confronts him. And Andy is, you know, he's like, uh, he's a bank guy. So he knows how to get out of the taxes on this money that he just got. And... Uh, Clancy Brown, Captain Hadley's not too happy about it. He goes, this fucker's about to have himself an accident. Grabs him. He's about to throw him off the roof. Andy starts selling himself. He's like, I know how you can keep this money, blah, blah, blah. And he does it. And his price he asks for doing the paperwork to save him the money he was going to pay in taxes is three beers a piece for each of my Bucket of suds. Bucket of suds. A man feels more like a man if he can have a bucket of suds. After a hard day's work. After a hard day's work. And lo and behold... They all sat there drinking suds. Andy doesn't drink though, and he has a, which is interesting, because he was drinking it when he went to. Because he said he stopped drinking, he gave it up. Yeah, when they nice. a, they asked him, they, they said, "Andy, aren't you gonna have? Yeah, one? you want a cold one?" He goes, "Nah, I gave up drinking." Which, that whole scene, one thing that um, I saw it compared to was uh, the Last Supper. Oh, that's early in the film for the Last Supper, though. It is. But I don't know what the significance of of that would be because those those end up in the end being all the people who tell stories about how great Andy was. Right. Yeah, I, that's true. 
But Andy ends up living. So he's not like sacrificed. Yeah. Way. But yeah, so they have their. Well, you could also, I don't want to get too ahead of it. We can come back to it. Keep okay. going. Keep okay. going. Okay. Uh, so they have their beers. Oh, we should also say, uh, then after this, uh, Andy is seen. I actually might have this a little later, but Andy is seen uh, kind of fucking with his wall with the rock hammer because people have written their names there and he's writing his name. Yep. Again, a breadcrumb for later. And then he asks Red for a poster of Rita Hayworth. Yes. We don't know why. Maybe he just wants a pretty woman in there. Then he's attacked by the sisters again, and this is a bad attack. This is where they're going to... They ain't just fucking him. They're putting their dicks in his mouth. Yeah. Which they tell him very explicitly. (laughs) (laughs) And put a knife to his ear and say this is happening. Which is when Andy says... Whatever you stick in my mouth, you're going to lose. Yeah, and then he's like, no, 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 that eight inches of steel, that's what this is for. <laughs> and then Andy goes on to explain sudden uh, brain damage causes the... Uh, the jaw to clamp down. Yeah. They have to use a pry bar to uh, open <laughs> And I love the line when he goes, I know all this. And then Andy, almost knowing he's going to get a beating... Just goes, I read it in a book. You know how to read, you dumb fuck? <laughs> you dumb, ignorant fuck? So he gets beaten within an inch of his life. Ends up in the infirmary for a month. Infirmary for a month. Uh, Boggs fucking goes to the hole. But when Boggs comes out, that's when Captain Hadley, which we don't know why yet, beats the piss out of Boggs. And we watch Boggs become a sniveling little pussy in his own cell. Which it also doesn't show. That's true. It Yeah, it doesn't show the beating because we're outside the cell and all we see, we hear Boggs and then we see him crawling outside the Screaming cell and crying. Us, like, help me, help me. What we don't expect from Boggs. And then they pull him back in. Yep. And so this is all an elaborate uh, sizing up of Andy by the warden. He's doing him a favor. Comes to visit him once he's uh, he's out of the infirmary. And asks him to basically be a librarian with mm-hmm. Brooks, which again, we don't know. And why then yet. no one ever fucks with Andy after that because the warden sent He's, a message basically. Yeah. He sent a message with Boggs and Boggs is sent off. And I think the line is, uh, I heard Boggs ended up drinking uh, food through a straw for the rest of his yep. life. And then uh, Andy's with these guys. He's obviously in their little crew or whatever because they gather him a bunch of rocks because he wants to make uh, chess pieces. Mm hmm. He gets transferred into the library, right? With Brooks, yep. Oh, and then uh, the guard comes down. A guard comes down. Once Andy is in the library with Brooks and Jake, and we see Jake is kind of fully grown at this point, one of the guards comes down and says, uh, I was thinking about opening uh, some education funds for my kids, you know? And so Andy sits him down, and uh, just like a normal banker, he ends up setting up these accounts for his kids, and then we come to find out that all the guards want Andy to do this. Even guards from competing prisons, they end up coming in with their W-2s. Andy does their taxes for free. And the more he does of this, the better he is treated in prison. So after this, uh, we go into basically what is a short film within the film, which is Brooks. Brooks Hadley. Yeah. The old man who's, I think he says he came there and like, 1905 or 1910 or something. Ought five, dude. Ought five, yeah. Came here in about uh, ought five. <laughs> Came librarian in uh, ought eight. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, so he actually ends up getting out. Yeah. The way they find out he's getting out, he's holding a knife to Haywood's neck. He says, I'm going to kill him. 
I'm going to kill him. <laughs> the only way they'll let me stay. He doesn't want to leave Shawshank. Doesn't want to get out. And this is, again, where this world becomes even more foreign to us because we're like, who the fuck would not want to get out of prison? Who would want to kill their friend to stay in prison? But that's what Brooks Hadley wants to do. And then we get into what I think is like a short film that's just Brooks Hadley. It's the hardest part of the movie to watch because he gets out of prison. He's trying to reacclimate to life and just can't. I mean, he says at one point, I saw an automobile when I was a kid once and now they're everywhere. You know, he's working at a grocery store. His hands hurt. He's just, there is no life. For Maybe him. suffering from dementia. Maybe. Because it talks about, um, he, he has that kind of that monologue when he's in the bed at night and he says he wakes up, he can't remember oh, where he is. That's, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause he talks about having nightmares, but then yeah, he wakes up and he doesn't know where he is. So, and he's all alone. He has no family, nothing. And it ends up, it ends with Brooks's suicide mm-hmm. and he says something so sad he just goes i don't i don't uh, i don't like it here i'm t- i'm tired of being afraid all the time i've decided not to stay and then he hangs himself because he, he writes a letter to the guys back in prison his Which, friends his family yeah and they get and they read it after and uh i don't know this part of the movie is like watching it so many times it's hard for me to watch this part now so I'm like, why put myself through it again? It's so sad. It is sad. Um, this is one of those parts. Now when I rewatch it, that's when I'll like pull out my phone and maybe check some stuff. Because I'm like, I don't want to be put through this. But it is important later. So as happens... Oh, we should say too, Red has another great line when he's talking about they can't understand why uh, Brooks would want to stay. He's institutionalized. Institutionalized. And he says, uh, these, he says something to the degree of these walls are funny. And he talks about how at, at the beginning, they're horrible, but then you get to rely on them. And he says, uh, they send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take away, the parts that count anyway. Which, I don't have any major thoughts on life sentences or prison or anything, but uh, it, lines like that definitely make you think during this movie. And I will say, another genius part of this writing, the only people whose crimes we ever know are Andy and Red. We never, ever know what the other guys did. Except Tommy, who will come in later. But these other guys who are around the whole time, they could have murdered people, raped people. You never know. The film forces you to look at them as human beings. Yeah. By taking away the worst thing they ever did and asking you to define them based on their other actions, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really interesting conceit. I don't think they're trying to say anything major about prison in this movie. But I think they are trying to say something about just life and, and freedom in general and human nature, what human nature can sustain. Where do you think Andy was like mentally at the time of Brooks' death? Well, I was going to say, as happens in life so often, good news falls tragedy. Because the second Brooks dies, Andy gets good news because he talks about he's been writing letters to the Senate to try to get funding to expand the library. And Brooks, who was the head librarian, right when he dies, they get the funding. They get books and they get, I think he says, a $500 check or something to... And they want him to stop writing. Yeah, they say, uh, please stop writing. (laughs) And then he starts writing two letters a week. Yeah, because I think he says he's been writing them for like six years or something. Something crazy Mm -hmm. like that. So then this is the second time Andy kind of gifts the other prisoners with a feeling of freedom. He's feeling good, and he's in the warden's office. He's got all these books and this money, and he the go- records and the records are there. And he starts playing a record, and it's uh, opera music. 
and he plays it over the uh, microphone to the whole yard. He, lo- he locks in locks the guard that's that's in the bathroom. Oh, who's uh, pinching a loaf. Yes. Which I thought, I have never heard a human being ever say, I'm going to go pinch a loaf. And every time I hear it in this movie, I love it. Cause it's it's a, old timey. It's appropriately disgusting for taking a shit. Yeah. Because pinching a loaf sounds pretty gross. <laughs> so I love that. So he plays the music. Warden comes back. He's pissed off. Breaks the window. Throws Andy in the hole. And when Andy comes out, he has a really important conversation with Red and the other guys where he talks about this place inside of everybody that they can't reach, even if they put you away. And that's where music goes. That's where music and other ideas go. And Red says, uh, hope is a dangerous thing. And he gets mad and he walks off. And Andy almost looks perplexed. He can't understand it. Because hope is so central to what keeps him sane in this insane place. So I think in the Christian mysticism thing, um, if you go back to like Andy's rape, getting beaten and everything like that, that's being, uh, that's the stripping of the ego, which is uh, Mm -hmm. purgation or something. I don't know what that word is. Okay. Um, and I think him playing that music is illumination. Mm. It's the thing that they, no one can take away from you that just exists yeah. inside of you. Because this is the first time we hear Andy talk about something like yeah. that. Yeah, that was great. I thought that was brilliant. Um, so yeah, Red says, oh, another great line from me. He just says, hope can, uh, hope can drive a man insane. It can. And, I, and this is a guy talking from experience because mm-hmm. he's been behind these walls. And you have to imagine he probably did have hope at one point. Yeah. Because uh, going into his first parole, he probably had hope, maybe even his second parole. And we go straight from this scene to his second parole rejection, where we see it is a script he's reading from because he says the same exact thing he said the first time. And he seems even deader inside now. And And still doesn't care if he gets released. Still doesn't seem to care. And he is rejected. Again, they even call it, uh, uh, they get each other rejection gifts because then Andy gives him a, Parole rejection gift, and it's a harmonica because Red mentions uh, I used to play me in harmonica. And there's a, another one of the saddest moments of the movie, I think, is Andy gives it to him. This is after Red has been rejected for parole. He says, Are you going to play it? And Red just kind of like stays silent for a second. He's like, Not right now. It's almost like music is too good for that moment. He has to stay in that bad feeling to get rid of it. You know, I thought that was, I thought that was great. So then we get into another expansion of the library. Mm-hmm. This is where Andy, he gets more money from the Senate because like you said, he's been writing two letters a week. Oh, which I was also going to mention when he's in that warden's office and he plays that music, it was kind of ballsy to do when all those books were just laying there. You know what I mean? Yeah. I thought that was kind of weird. Maybe they wanted to keep Andy happy so he knew they'd be safe. But I would think their first punishment would be like, we're getting rid of these fucking these books. books. Like, fuck you and fuck <laughs> the Senate. Who's going to get upset about it? So they, uh, they expand the library again. They name it after Brooks. And uh, this is one of the examples of the film being funny. As serious as it is, it keeps like a genuine sense of humor because these guys have such good chemistry and they're organizing books. And Haywood, he picks up the Count of Monte Cristo, which he calls the Count of Monte Crisco. And he goes by Alexander Dumbass. Dumbass, like he's impressed. (laughs) And uh, he's told it's Dumas and then Andy... Andy uh, says it's about a prison break, and then Red goes, oh, we ought to file that under educational too, huh? (laughs) So I love that throughout this whole movie, they manage, and it's uh, quite a tone to manage because it's very serious, but then we could still, when we're just hanging out with these guys, we want to laugh. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
So then we're introduced to the Inside Out program. This is when we're introduced to the idea of the warden skimming money. Because the warden is basically having his prisoners, they're on work programs. They're going to work uh, construction jobs and stuff. And he'll basically outbid anyone so then he can get people who actually want the contracts to give him money. And we see that. And then we also are introduced to another breadcrumb for the ending, which Andy uh, is funneling all this money. He makes up a person, Randall Stevens, I think his name is. He just makes him up, mm-hmm. social security card, birth certificate, and all the money's going to him, so it's untraceable. And this is, the again, one of the only reasons Andy's getting treated well, because he's protected for doing all this stuff. He's helping them on their criminal enterprise. Yep. So I, uh, and I love too, they're dropping these breadcrumbs, but in other movies where there's kind of a twist ending, which I guess this could count as one, but then they hint at it the whole movie, that's usually the gimmick. And then it doesn't work because then you're like, well, now I know everything. So you see it twice. You're like, great. But this movie, despite putting these breadcrumbs and being very smart about it, it's never the point of the movie. No. The point of the movie is the characters. And again, this sort of metaphor about life, which I love. And uh, Andy has another great line, a funny line. He says, on the outside, I was an honest man, straight as an arrow. I had to come to prison to be a crook, which is great. And then we get into... What I think is the final stretch of the movie. This is when like everything changes. We're introduced to Tommy Williams, played by Gil Bellows. What do you think of Tommy? I love Tommy, dude. You like Tommy? I like Tommy, man. <laughs> yeah, With well, his he's, Elvis sideburns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like this young rock and roller who comes in. He uh, kind of brings the changing times with him. Now exactly. That I think about it, yeah. I didn't even make a note of that. Because when when he comes on the scene, they play like a muddy water song or something like that. Yep. And you see the sideburns and mm-hmm. the sleeves rolled up. He looks real cool. Slick back hair. Yeah, it looks like Grease. Yeah. John Travolta. Yeah, I like... Uh, well, everyone likes Tommy, right? Yeah. When he comes in. Right, right away. And he's this young guy, and he's been in and out of prison for uh, stealing shit. And another great line. This is when Andy gets to use the... Uh, Don't you know everyone's innocent here? He gets to use it himself. But he also says... And this is something... I feel like I would say to a criminal in prison. Like, if I ended up in prison, and I met someone who's like, Oh, yeah, I've done time everywhere. Andy goes... Maybe it's time to change professions because you're not a very good thief. Like you keep getting caught. <laughs> yeah. I, I always want to say that to like when I'm watching like cops or anything, I see these people who keep getting busted. I almost want to be like, I respect being a criminal, but you're not that good at it. Yeah. Because <laughs> you keep getting busted. It's like being fired continually in a profession. Eventually you're gonna go like, maybe I'm just not that good at this. So uh Tommy, he comes to Andy and wants to get his GED. So this starts... Because uh, he has he has a little baby girl. Little baby girl. Oh, and I think the poster at this point has changed to Marilyn Monroe. Yes. Important to keep track of that poster. Uh, yeah, so he wants to get his GED, and this starts... I mean, Andy teaches him from the ABCs. This guy doesn't know much. Not Can't much education. Read. But he takes him all the way. He takes his uh, SATs. Is that what it is? It's been so a fucking GED. long. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so he takes his GED test or whatever to get his high school equivalent. And uh, this is when we get our proof, maybe, that Andy is innocent because Tommy's talking to Red and he finds out for the first time Andy's in there for murder. Red says a few details and then Tommy says, whoa, I used to know a guy who talked about a murder. That sounds exactly the same. And again, what's brilliant is we never see the murder. Frank Darabont never just drops We see the murderer, though. We see the murderer confessing. He obviously did it, but I like that Darabont leaves enough doubt. He's like, I'm not going to show you the murder because that's not life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Things don't get tied up that nicely. 
So there's still an argument to be made. Like maybe Andy could have done it. Yeah. I don't know. So Andy goes to the warden with this information. Warden's obviously like, fuck you. You're you know too much. Yeah. You're staying in prison. <laughs> like, I don't give a fuck if you murder Do you wife. think that at this point when Andy goes to the warden, does the warden think Andy is innocent? I, th- yeah, I think when the warden hears the story, I don't know if he knows a hundred percent Andy's innocent, but I think he, he knows he's pretty sure. scared. Yeah. Because I know he only takes a liking to Andy because Andy's not like these other guys in prison. Andy's valuable. Andy is valuable. So I think he does think he's innocent. And then this is when the best insult of all time comes out. Andy goes, how can you be so obtuse? (laughs) Which at the time, and still to this day, the only time I've ever heard obtuse used was in high school geometry class. But Andy turns it into an insult. And I have been waiting. He's disgusted. He's disgusted with the warden. And you feel it. Yeah. And he goes, how can you be so obtuse? And then he even proof. And the warden is so offended. He even goes, what did you call me? (laughs) As if he called like. And Andy says it again, doesn't he? He's like obtuse. Obtuse. Is it deliberate? (laughs) It's such corny dialogue, but they sell it. And I swear I have been keeping that obtuse insult in my, in the back of my mind for my whole life. I'm waiting for the right moment to use that on somebody. I don't want to waste it and use it all the time. But when someone really pisses me off. I'm going to drop that hammer and they're going to react just like the warden. Cause if so, wouldn't you react like that? If someone called you obtuse, I would, I would, I would be like, what did you call me? It would be off putting. Yeah, it's, it's too weird of an insult to brush off. It's not about like what it's saying about you. It's just, he dove into his head and like in this big word ocean, he pulled out obtuse. That took some digging. This person hates you (laughs) so Andy goes to the hole because he says to the warden you know uh, you know I would be indictable too if I talked about anything I did in here and the warden's like don't you ever mention money to me again gives him a month in the hole (laughs) and then uh, unfortunately we see he talks to Tommy Tommy is killed by Captain because, Hadley. Because the, the warden is questioning Tommy and he asks him, would you swear on the Bible yeah, that this so is true? would you go to trial if this happened? Yeah. And this is, uh, even though this is based on a Stephen King's story, a lot of this is Frank Darabont because I should have mentioned earlier with Brooks, Brooks had a different ending in the book. He ended up going to an old home and dying. And then Tommy ended up actually going to a better prison in exchange for his silence. And they were very minor characters, and Darabont expanded them and gave them different endings, which I think is pretty cool. Because he does it, he does a great job. With yeah, it. that really bo- ties it together. I would say those characters really end up defining Andy. So at it, the end, just to lay it out, they're outside. As soon as Tommy walks out, the warden offers him a cigarette. Yep. Which is unusual. Red flags already. Up. Yeah. Right. Right. And. Uh, he walks away and there's a couple different guards that basically. Well, there's, I think it's only Hadley. It's only Hadley. That shoots him. And then they say he tried to escape and the warden With goes. With less than a year left. Which, why would anyone do that? Cause he only had like two years in or, or something yeah. like that. And, uh. But he did get his GED. And he got his GED. So like, why would he try to escape? And we can tell he's a changed person. There was another very small moment that was so good in the movie where he's telling everyone the story. He's telling Andy the story. And he goes, before he's bringing up thievery with like a sense of uh, pride 
And this time he's talking about why he was in prison with this guy who killed Andy's wife. And he says, oh, I stole a car. And he's very ashamed. And he goes, dumb fuck thing to do. Yeah. So he's changed at the end. Andy really has changed him. He's rehabilitated him. Yeah. Which is, again, I don't know why I'm getting like political with it, but this movie isn't trying to make any big points. But this is a good example of rehabilitation versus punishment. I'm not saying which one I'm for. Obviously, some people should be punished. Which is interesting also that Andy is the one who helps him. Mm -hmm. Because he's an innocent guy in jail and he sees something. Sees something in Tommy. Okay. Okay. All right. See Um, something in Tommy. He sees something in Tommy and he knows that he's worth helping. And Tommy's still young enough where he can change. He can Mm -hmm. can change and he can get out of jail Mm -hmm. and turn his life around. So uh, another favorite shot of mine from this movie is the warden comes to visit Andy in the hole and the door only cracks open a little bit. And when he's moving in on Andy, the camera's up and he looks like a fucking giant. Yeah. Like it's, it's pretty imposing because Andy's basically saying, I'm not doing it. I'm not funneling your money anymore. Fuck you. It all stops. And this is when we see the warden for who he really is because he goes, I'll take you out of that one bunk Hilton and I'll cast you down with the sodomites. You'll feel like you've been fucked by a train. And he goes to the library, we'll wall it off. We'll burn all the books. And he goes, uh, we'll dance around the fire like wild Indians. <laughs> like, Jesus, <laughs> this is That's no some fun. Hitler shit. Dude. I was like, that was definitely when I was like, this is a scary motherfucker. <laughs> like, so, and again, he's the main antagonist for this whole third act. Cause after Tommy, we're basically in the third act and yeah. it's over. Which is also in the Christian mysticism theme. This oh, is the dark night of soul. Mm, okay. Cause it's so like a, he helped Tommy out, right? There was finally a chance for potentially for him to get out. And that was thrown all away by the warden. And this is like, so like night is darkest before it's dawn. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is, um, he gets another month in the hole, another month in the hole. Yep. And, uh, after he gets out, I think the most important scene in the movie happens. It's him and Red talking. And this is where, like, it becomes obvious what this movie is about. It is about fucking life. And he's talking about how he... Well, he introduces the idea of Zewatanehu. Zewatanehu. I've never forgotten that. Zewatanehu. That's where I want to retire. He talks about how all he wants in life is this this little patch of beach in a town called Zewatanehu in Mexico. Buy a little boat, fix it up, open a small hotel. He says, I don't think that's much to ask for. And he says some really important things here about how he goes, I didn't kill my wife. But he accepts guilt in this moment. I think this is a big, when we talk at the end about life, this is a big metaphor for, I think, us as people. When we go through really hard times, the only time we really get over it is that moment where we accept our responsibility in it however small and he accepts responsibility times a hundred because he's he says you know he wasn't basically the one to pull the trigger but he pushed his wife away to where she wanted to cheat he was a hard man to know letter uh which led her and her lover to their deaths Mm -hmm. and he says uh it floats around it's got to land on somebody and he's talking about the storm just this storm of chaos and misery I love that because bad luck, I guess bad luck, I guess, because so many things happen in life where we can go. This is unfair. There's no reason I should be dealing with this, you know, but that's life. It's this 
just tornado of shit. Sometimes you're just in the way of the tornado. It's not your fault. You just have to weather the storm. And that's what Andy's been doing. I thought that was great too. And, and, uh, red again talks about how, and this is, I thought red's line. Cause, uh, uh, Andy asked him, have you ever seen the Pacific ocean? Cause that's where say looks out on the Pacific ocean. Pacific has no memory. Yes. He says, uh, Oh, what does he say? Uh, it's something like, I want to live somewhere warm with no memory, something like that, which is beautiful. Like that's where we all want to go. I, I, that's where I want to go. At least it's a contrast to Maine. And yeah, it is a contrast to Maine. And red says, uh, you know, at one point he goes, uh, Pacific Ocean, you know, something scare me to death that big. And I think we all feel that too. I think him saying that, he's the doubting part of our mind, you know? Man of science. Man of science, yeah. Because he's talking about reality. You know, he is the representation of reality. And we all, any of us that have ever worked for something or had a dream or or, or had a goal or a, an end point we we're working towards, we all had that doubting voice. It's like, Why? Pacific Ocean, like, you know. It's, Why you want to go there? Yeah, it's Why you too big. You won't know what to do, and so I think red kind of represents that in this moment. And then uh, after that, we're we're at the escape, man. Yeah, the fucking escape where we see all the pieces come together. Andy goes through this tunnel, crawls through how many yards of shit? Five hundred yards. Five hundred. The length of five football fields. Five hundred yards of shit. The Andy, prisoner shit, which is not good shit. They ain't eating healthy in there. No. <laughs> Those are gonna be some wet, nasty shits. And we see it too when he when he gets to this uh this sewer, he's just he busts it open. Every time there's thunder. Yep. Yeah, because he plans it on a night that's storming, which is smart. But as he's going through, I mean we see him puking and everything, which I don't know how you wouldn't pass out in there. It would take an amazing amount of willpower to fucking make it through there. But this is where I'll go ahead and talk about it. I think with Shawshank and uh, I'll talk about a Tim Robbins quote later too that plays into this but with Shawshank the way I view Shawshank now after seeing it so many times that prison is life that prison is day to day the day to day doldrum of life that's jobs bad relationships everything that just is kind of expected in life I think Red even talks about that at one point doesn't he? does he? I think I he know. talks about like a bad relationship, whatever. Oh, I don't know. But, and then I think this tunnel is, that's the tunnel that dreamers, people who want to live a different life, people who want that small beach on Zewatanehu, that's what you have to go through to, to get, there. get what you want. You need to dig a fucking hole. You need to stay true to yourself. You need to be honest with yourself. You be need patient. Be patient. Pressure and time. Pressure and time. Because Pressure they took, and time. How long do you think Andy plotted his escape? Uh, I actually, well, I think he had it plotted pretty fast because they say, I think he got out in less than 20 or just over 20. And we see how fast it is between him taking a chunk out of the wall and then getting the poster. He seems to do it pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So I think he planned it. Very fast. But I think at the beginning, he may not have even thought it was an escape. It was a way to keep his mind sane, you know, just digging the hope of it. But eventually it had to become real, which we never see, which is interesting because we start from Andy's perspective. But then at the end, we're in Red's perspective. So there's things we don't know about Andy. One thing I'm, I'm curious about is just uh, if 
if he if he knew right from when he was getting into prison that he was planning on escaping. I don't think so. I think, but that's again a question that can be debated. People can say either way. I don't think he knew he was going to escape. I don't think he knew until he took that chunk out of the wall. And then what about with Tommy? So he must have been planning on escaping soon when Tommy came on the scene. Well, I think Red implies that the tunnel was done when uh, Tommy came. Yes. But he decided to stay for Tommy. And then when Tommy died, he decided he hadn't had enough of this place. Which plays into the Dark Knight of Soul. Mm -hmm. Another significant thing is the poster. So he escapes... uh, behind the poster and the, the woman always changes just with whatever the times are. Yeah. It ends up being Raquel Welsh. That's yes. the final poster. And, um, there's some significance there too. Cause he goes through like, it's a poster of a woman, you mm-hmm. know, womb there. There's that metaphor. Okay, there. Yeah. Yeah. And then he comes out on the other end of the tunnel. The thing that I was going to mention earlier is about, um, just like rebirth and everything like that. Yeah. Is he still, cause he's no longer Andy Dufresne on the other side of that tunnel. Well, he becomes Randall Stevens or whatever that guy's name is. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that's when the symbolism becomes obvious because he ends up literally in a, 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 a thing of water and it's raining and he puts his hands out. He is being cleansed yeah. of whatever sins came before. Uh, and, oh, and a great line from red again, Andy Dufresne, the only guy to crawl through 500 yards of shit and come out clean on the other side. <laughs> Which I think that's the man we all aspire to be. Yeah. A guy who can crawl through 500 yards of shit and come out clean on the other side. Yeah. So uh, from here, basically, we see Andy's plan kind of playing out. He's Randall Stevens. He goes to all these banks, collects all this money, sends all this evidence he had of what the warden was up to to a reporter. And the murder. And the murder. He had everything in there. And so then we see uh, Captain Hadley's arrested, uh, the warden, he completely played him. We see that the entire time he's been keeping uh, his rock hammer in his Bible, which we see the warden even pick up at one point, mm-hmm. and they quote the Bible back to each other, which is an interesting he moment. He walks away mm-hmm. earlier in the film and passes him the Bible back. Yes. And that's the... Through th- the closed prison door. Yeah, and we should have said, I guess, when they're sizing him up, Andy's already started his escape. So when they come in, they're knocking stuff down. They're holding the Bible. That's a tense moment. And you see it stays on Robin Williams. I mean, uh, Tim Robbins. Sorry, I was about to say Robin Williams. That would be a different movie. And uh, (laughs) They stay on Tim Robbins' face for a lot of it. And you see him freaking out. And the first time you watch the movie, you don't really get why. But then rewatching it, you're like, fuck, this is tense. He would have got fucked. Yeah, he would have got fucked and found anything. So Warden ends up blowing his brains out because he can't handle the... He would have to go to jail. He would have to go to jail. And uh, then we see uh, Red has his second parole. I mean, his third parole. Third parole. Through the movie. And this time, he basically says, I don't give a fuck. I don't know what rehabilitated means. I wish I never did what I did. He says some great stuff about wanting to go back in time, talk to his younger self. Yeah. Talk some sense into him. And this time, he gets paroled. Mm -hmm. And then we get what I think is, I don't want to call it a correction, but it's progress from the Brooke short film because now we get the red short film and yeah. it's the same uh mini journey where he's staying in the same room at the same halfway house he has same the same job, job grocery store and he's having the same feelings like i just want to go back maybe i'll just rob the the grocery store and and go back and the only thing that gives him hope is andy sent him a postcard from fort hancock texas 
Meaning he on sent him border. sent him a postcard right before he was going to get to Mexico to let him know I'm going to be in Zewatanehu. And he tells during that important conversation, he tells uh, Red about this field, hayfield in Buxton. He's like, go find it. And there's this rock and pry up the rock and you'll see a message, which I thought, tell me what you think of this. I thought it was a little weird that he wasn't more descriptive about the hayfield in Buxton. Because have you been to Buxton? Well, he describes the uh, the oak tree and also the lava rock. He does. But Red is definitely going to have to ask where the fuck this hayfield is, yeah. right? He can't just go to Buxton and check every fucking hayfield. Yeah, because there's nothing there. Yeah, it's a little weird. Buxton is like all backwoods like fields. Like, there's no way you would find it. Uh, so, yeah, he, so Red goes. He get, he finds a letter from uh, from Andy. He finds some money, and I thought a great moment, which like this is totally a guy just out of prison. When he finds the money, he pulls up the cash. Even though he's in this field, middle of nowhere, he, he looks, looks around. around. Yeah, he goes <laughs> like, "Is there someone's gonna come and take it from him?" That's one hundred percent a guy just out of prison. And then he's on his way to Mexico, and he's on the bus. And uh, I think when we were rewatching this, this was when coronavirus was first happening. We right? had a pretty good laugh. I, <laughs> I think I have this quote written down. <laughs> where he says uh i can barely i, keep still. I find i'm so excited i can hardly sit still or find a thought in my head yeah we had a good laugh because i said that's what it would be like when coronavirus yeah. is over and he even says uh it's a feeling only a free man can have, <laughs> which we were getting a good laugh out of because that's definitely we're just coming out of it now but when it's completely done that's how we're all gonna feel yeah and it ends with an ending that actually wasn't supposed to be there Really? So he finds him on the beach in Zewatanehu. It's a great fucking ending. You see the Pacific Ocean, and Red says, you know, I hope it's as blue as it is in my dreams, and they just photograph it so fucking well. And so they shot this ending. The ending was not in the Stephen King book. The, it ended with Red on the bus to Mexico, which I can almost appreciate. I like endings like that a lot of the time, but this is a movie that requires some finality. Yeah. And so... Basically, Frank Darabont, he came in with a cut that was too long and they were cutting stuff. And at one point it was discussed like, well, let's cut the ending, that last little bit because we don't need it. And the producer who had originally seen it and risked her job to get it produced, she said, no, I that ending has to be in there, which I'm glad she said that because that is the fucking ending. Yeah. Because when you get there, there's been so many, there's been so much that happens. There's been so many things that have been laid down that pay off later, you really feel like you went through a whole journey with these characters. Definitely. So uh, another behind the scenes thing, this was filmed at a prison in Ohio, I guess, that was closed a few years before. And they hired inmates uh, from that prison to work as like background extras and stuff. Really? Because they wanted to get stories from them because that prison was closed for inhumane living conditions. And they would tell stories about Prisoners being like thrown off the top of buildings, just crazy shit happening. Shit that was happening in Shawshank. Shawshank. So they would they hired these guys and they were getting these stories off of them. I thought that was interesting. They mainly filmed at that prison, then they had some some sets built. But uh, but yeah, what do you? Well, actually, let me give you this quote before I ask you this. I don't have the quote directly. I've listened to it so many times that I'm just gonna butcher it. But Tim Robbins was asked. Uh, I think it was called like the off-camera show or something. He was asked why Shawshank resonates with so many people. And he said, Shawshank is one of the few movies that has a happy ending that's earned. 
like most happy endings are tacked on and they feel like movies because you walk away and you go, that's the movies. You know, that's not life. And he says, basically, what I thought was brilliant about Shawshank, he says this prison is a metaphor because everyone could be stuck in a bad job a bad relationship, going through a divorce, whatever your hardships are, this movie has a genuine message of if you just fight long enough for what you want with a little bit of luck and a little bit of persistence, you're going to get it. Maybe that's why the story is so personal to Frank Darabont Mm -hmm. and why it pushed so hard to have it made. Because you definitely can correlate this to an artist's journey. And he had a long journey because 33 is... He had had success before 33, but 33's a little late, a little, you know what I mean? That's definitely, I mean, we're, I'm 27, you're 28. Imagine the doubts we'd have at 33, you know what I mean? Even if we had written The Blob and The Fly too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's what I love about it is it's, like some people don't like it. There are detractors who are like, oh, it's too sentimental. It's too this. I would argue it's not because it does get dark. It doesn't glamorize. <sighs> it doesn't glamorize the journey that no. Andy has to go through. No, it shows it for all the hardships it is. And he does it for 20 fucking years. And it makes you think about life. Like, again, whatever you're going through, whether it's a divorce or it's a bad job or something you've just committed too much time to. The idea that, I mean, Andy at the end of this movie has got to be in his 50s. And Probably he's like still, 40s, early 50s. And he's still fighting. And all he wants, I thought this was great too, is he says that this beach, it's not much to ask for, right? And a lot of us who have dreams, when we think about where we want to end up, it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple life. Like if I was to say where I want to end up, it's making money from what I want to make. And having that small little beach, whatever that little space of the world is. And I think that's what's so frustrating about if we're going to go to Darabont and go to like the artistic journey. That's what's so frustrating about his journey and correlating it to that those journeys. Because when you think about that simple thing you want, then this long distance of times is even more frustrating. Because you're like, I'm not trying to get much. You know, I'm not trying to be president or leader of the free fucking world. I just want a piece of the pie for me. Small piece. Which Andy, he was very patient throughout the whole movie too. Very patient. And that's, again, part of what this movie is about is having that patience. To weather the storms. To go through all the bad stuff. To keep your eye on the ball. You know? To know that no matter how bad things get, it's gonna end. And who knows, when it ends, there may be another storm waiting for you. Well, it's a continuation of what we talked about last week. With the sailor's guide to earth where the sea is a metaphor for life. He was talking about the same things. And I think the way he was using the sea as a metaphor, almost the same way this movie uses prison as a metaphor. And prison's a great metaphor for life because, again, and I think this was something Tim Robbins talked about is when those in those negative situations, you feel like you're in prison. You're in a mental prison. Well, looking at Andy's character, he was mentally imprisoned. Mm hmm. He played by the rules his whole life. He did everything he was supposed to. That's true. Was yeah. successful young. Before he went to prison, he was in prison mentally. That's a good good point. And he didn't get free until he, he went to prison. Yeah, and if you want to get very like David Lynch with it, I guess this is like his metaphorical escape from that mental prison. Mm-hmm. You know? Because this journey he goes through, I think 
the people that this personally touches will recognize it as their own journey again for whatever they have to do yeah. whether it's you want to be whatever you want to do whatever for a living you want this in your life you know you want to get out of this relationship or this marriage or you want to get out of this job or whatever it's that same journey you're going to take and you're going to go through all the same things maybe it won't be male prison rape or murder or any of that but it'll be a version of that yeah and it'll be just as hard and it may take just as much time I think Andy's approach to the whole thing too is very stoic like mm-hmm. as it's happening to him he just deals with it he does he has that inner peace because again he talks about that thing inside that's where you keep music that's where you keep who you are you know the hope and I think he uh, he shows all the all the prisoners a piece of that through his time there you know um, I love this movie, man. By default, this has to be my favorite movie because it's the movie I've watched the most. It's not only my favorite movie, it's one of my favorite pieces of art ever made. And uh, I just think a lot a lot of movies, books, music, whatever, they do do the whole like, this is a metaphor for life. And they talk about it, but this does it in such a genuine fucking way and without any real agenda that... I think that's why it's lasted so long because you can't watch this movie and not think it's genuine. It can't not touch you in some way, some part of this movie. Well, it's it's a salt of the earth approach to storytelling. Mm, Interesting. What do you mean? All the characters are very real people. Like the, the fact, like we were talking about earlier, you know all these prisoners, but you don't know what any of their crimes are except for Andy, and Tommy, Red. and Red. And Tommy, yep. Um, and everybody else, they're, they're all just, they're just people it, it portrays them just as normal people Yeah, that just made a bad decision and ended up in jail. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I love this movie. I loved rewatching it. I'm going to rewatch it. I mean, a million times before I die. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's it for Shawshank Redemption. You got anything else to say? No. All right. Then that's been uh, man of science, man of faith. I'm Zachary Lehman. I'm Taylor Berryman. All right. Catch you next time. This podcast is produced to you by Taylor Miller.